Just before recording this episode, we discovered that writer Bob Baker, who co-created K-9, had died on November 3rd at the age of 82. We dedicate this episode to his memory. Hello, fellow time travelers. We are now part of the Direction Point Podcast Network, a podcast network specifically devoted to Doctor Who podcasts, including the Doctor Who Collectors podcast, the Police Box in a Junkyard podcast, and Time Streams. You can find the Direction Point Network at directionpoint.org. Check out all of our sister podcasts and enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers. I am Sasha from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I am Skip from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I'm Brooke. We're the Fiction Paradox, the only podcast dedicated to the BBC Books 8th Doctor Adventures in the whole world that we know of. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy Enjoy your your travels. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. This is John Leeson, and I play Kate Nine on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels, and that is compulsory. Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the courtly task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations, because courtly, yeah, whatever. <laughs> My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally courtly three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me, 
There's our intermediate level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we welcome back to the podcast the host of one of our sister podcasts on the Direction Point Network, the Police Box in a Junkyard podcast, and the host of the Video Junkyard podcast, Eric Goldbranson. Hello, Eric. Hello. Good to be back. Thanks. Good to have you back. Mm-hmm. Remind us what your podcasts are and where we can find them. The primary podcast is the Video Junkyard Podcast. We uh, review cult movies from the 80s and 90s, basically just see if they hold up in the modern era, or if we know we still love the half-forgotten films we enjoyed as children. Also, what started as a sister podcast is the Police Box of the Junkyard Podcast, and is now a proud member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network, as this podcast is as well. So look for both of those on SoundCloud, Spotify, uh, Stitcher Radio, pretty much any of the, the podcast aggregates out there, wherever you listen to podcasts. We should be available. If not, get a hold of me, and I will make them available there. So, <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much. If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash GWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving the PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you keep them in a dungeon with your kidnapped princesses and dwarves. <laughs> just to say, thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. You didn't kidnap the dwarf. The dwarf is down there with the kidnapped princess mm-hmm. ah, or yeah. you keep them in another castle yeah exactly <laughs> sorry i had to put that in there and as always we'd like to thank our regular patrons bart lammy rick taylor toby bengelsdorf jay barry the video junkyard podcast the doctor who collectors podcast hans wax stephen pickering james sumnall dave davis and simon painter thank you all Thank you, thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue with the key to time season with our discussion of Terrence Dick's novelization of David Fisher's script for The Androids of Tara. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Androids of Tara, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by David Fisher that aired from 11-25-78 to 12-16-78, published by Target in April 1980. As of this recording in November of 2021, this title is currently out of print, 124 pages. Something that I did not note last time is that as of the novelization of Stones of Blood, we are in the first, and I believe the only time, we're reading a set of stories both in story order and publication order. Stones was published in March of 1980. This one that we're about to read tonight was published in April. And the final two stories of the season will be published in May and June, respectively. Then Philip Pinchcliffe has to come and fuck it all up by giving (laughs) us his version of Keys of Marinus in August. Among other things, yeah. It's also one of the few times that one writer gets to write sequential stories. And because of David Fisher's animosity to Terence Dick's novelizations, it's also one of the few times that we have two brand new audiobooks done for stories that are sequential. This one also has an audiobook that Hmm. was done by David Fisher. Okay. Yeah, there is no audiobook at all of the Terence Dick's version. 
I hadn't heard anything about specific animosity towards this one, but I guess David Fisher just really didn't like the Stones of Blood one and really didn't want this one done as an audiobook either, so there's a different version of it out there. Apart from that, there's not much else special about this one. Fisher got commissioned for this one on the strength of Stones of Blood when another script, The Sword of Zendak, fell through. That story was meant to have the Doctor discovering that Robin Hood was actually a villain. The Twelfth Doctor will eventually meet Robin Hood, though it's still an open question as to whether or not it was worth the wait. Producer Graham Williams asked Fisher to keep the same swashbuckling mode in his new script, which he decided to base on The Prisoner of Zenda, going so far as to originally call it The Prisoners of Zend, until the higher-ups of the BBC said, no, 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 no. <laughs> Let's try it out distance a little bit, shall we? It was also going to be the fifth story in the season rather than the fourth. But when the director for the story saw Robert Holmes' script for The Power of Kroll start coming in, he asked for the two stories to be swapped in order. And lest you were wondering, it was because of the technical challenges he saw in the scripts, not because of, you know, the story. Yeah, we'll get to that soon enough. Yeah, sorry, Dalton, but yeah, spoiler alert, it's not pretty. <laughs> A few other notable bits. Mary Tam did not ride the horse on screen, despite being an excellent horse rider herself, because she was not allowed any sort of safety equipment such as a helmet. She did, however, design her own outfit for the story in her favorite colors, which are turquoise and purple. It's really just a lovely outfit. And finally, Cyril Shap returns to play the Archimandrite in his fourth and last appearance on this show. And it's also the one time in all of his appearances that his character doesn't die, which is also nice. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Eric, would you be willing to do the honors for us? Absolutely. I brought it along with me just in case you were going to ask, so fantastic. <laughs> my copy here right in front of me. Ahem. <clears throat> On a peaceful rural planet where the colorful pageantry of old Ruritania mingles with ultra-modern android technology, the Doctor becomes a kingmaker in spite of himself. In this search for another segment of the key to time, the Doctor matches wits and swords with the evil Count Grendel, aided, of course, by Romana and the invaluable canine. Ruritania is actually the name of the country, I believe, in Prisoner of Zenda. Okay. <laughs> that's why that's there. <laughs> I figured that was, yeah, coming out. Yeah. If anyone's uh, wondering why that came up in a story that doesn't have Ruritania in it, that's because that's how close the story is to that particular story, <laughs> which I also don't care for. So there we are. Double whammy. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not really super even familiar with it, but so maybe that's why I don't don't catch all the but yeah it's basically the same story but with androids thrown in it's a duplicate king oh, okay. and all of that and yeah so well first impressions dalton what was your first impression when you got this well immediately on the cover i noticed romana's giant forehead <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, not a good likeness of Mary Tam here. No, no. Not no. a good likeness of anybody. Well, and there, there's even mention in the story about the actual princess having a little bit of a larger forehead than <laughs> Romana has, but that she looks like a character from Planet of the Apes. <laughs> like, yes. And then immediately the other thing I notice is this aristocrat 
sitting in what looks like a room on fire. <laughs> so I'm like, what the, what the hell is going on here? Um, the blurb on the back, though, doesn't really give too much away, which we've had issues with in the past with some of the blurbs giving us literally major plot points just... Yeah, just right out. So there was at least a little bit of mystery around the idea of the doctor being a kingmaker, wondering who the Count Grendel is. Yeah, I didn't I didn't have like a necessarily positive or negative reaction to that. Just more kind of like, okay, let's see what happens. Yeah, of all the weird things, this is one where the back cover doesn't give a lot away. And it really could have because no one would really give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless you know Ruritania, that probably gives a lot away right there to anybody who knows the original novel and, of course, the movies. But, but yeah, it's... How about you, Eric? When you first saw the story, when you read the book the very first time, what what were your thoughts on it? Well, besides, I, I agree that the cover art is not very attractive whatsoever. Not even a great likeness of the Doctor here, so... Mm-mm. Now, in, in general, from my uh, TV watching, I enjoyed this story quite a bit on my first watch through and i came to find out later that it was kind of a mixed bag on whether people love or kind of dislike the story mm-hmm. on tv the first impression of read through the novel and i'm, I'm probably going to perseverate on this a lot so i won't do it right this second but is that i'm not sure terrence dix really gets all of the nuances of david fisher's script no. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it kind of ruins a lot of the fun i'll just leave it there for now but <laughs> That is definitely true. Yeah, I think they could not be called members of a mutual appreciation society at all. Yeah, I can I could see where Fisher may have had some, and if the Stones of Blood is anything like this as a translation of his work, uh, why he may have some issues. So. Oh, it's not very good. Or rather, it's very yeah. mid-range, I should say, which is a very different thing. The, one of the biggest problems, I don't know if you've uh, heard that episode as yet, but... Basically, when Amelia Rumsford is going on about a particular Cornish something or others, it's some, it's something very specific. Cornish Fugus. That's it. Cornish Fugus. And apparently it's a thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Terrence Dix thought that was the name of a colleague. And <laughs> oh, David Fisher could not get around that. And I... <laughs> Don't blame him. Yeah, I was going to say, I know they didn't have Google those days, but he probably could have figured out what, you know. Probably, probably. (laughs) And I'm sure in the original script, it probably, well, yeah. So that's one reason. I'm sure there were other reasons, but yeah, he seems to have disliked it enough that he did his own audio version of this one as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Go figure. (sighs) Just what we need, more versions of the story. (laughs) Um, I'm sorry, I'm giving away what I think about this story already, and I really shouldn't. Oh, dear. What do we like about this story? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, Put everybody on spot. It's hard because I, I'm going to differentiate so often between like my thoughts on the, the television story and the book, because the book just... And I know, um, you know, ma- mainly from listening to you guys kind of go through and having read a, a handful of Terrence Dick's novelizations myself, that he goes everywhere from being like quite good at this to just checking the boxes to cash the paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like this is mostly the latter. It's oh, just yeah. kind of like a, a rote trans translation of the script without kind of like 
adding any of the charm the, the the script may not have been the best thing ever either way but i thought like the tv version of it at least has some humor and has some like quirky swashbuckling doctor kind of charm to it i guess and mm-hmm. i i uh on my initial watch through it and then the, the time that i i think i've only seen this one twice but at the time i i saw it again i did in generally enjoy it it's not going to land on a favorites list probably but i i don't dislike it but on the page the humor is missing or i'm like maybe he didn't actually see the show and just were from the script wasn't picking up on that there was humor and that's exactly what's happening yeah because even in 1980 when he wrote this probably he would not have gotten a tape of it or anything to watch he would have been working straight from the script as evidenced by the fact that he says that grendel's main bad guy is a dwarf and that obviously is not the case on screen yeah, I was reading this and did kind of a like reading version of a double take where I went back and went, what? I don't remember there being a dwarf in here. Am I crazy? There like, was not. <laughs> so. It was in the original script, though. So I, I guess yeah. Britain's one dwarf actor was not available at that particular time, <laughs> so they couldn't get him. I will say this. If you're watching the televised story, there's a charm to it, and it's fun, and you can tell the actors are having fun with it. Yeah. You can't really get that from this. The cast gives so much to this one. I mean, Tom Baker's full-on Tom Baker in this, and he's a lot of fun just because he <laughs> always is. But I feel like the actor played Grendel in the show. Um, oh, that is Peter. Oh, God, why am I forgetting his last name now? He's well known. Peter Jeffrey. Peter Jeffries. Yes, yeah. that's it. He is quite great in this as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, just as kind of this very memorable scenery chewing larger than life villain. Yeah, and that doesn't come across on the page. I mean, the the mustache twirling definitely comes across on the page. Yeah. Yeah, he just he just seemed very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> he is that. He is a little of that both ways, but... <laughs> yeah, it's like, can he just go away? Can he just go away? Stop. Like, he, he reminds me of one of those villains that's just constantly failing, you know? Yeah. Just, like, never has anything go his way, but he's still at it, and it's just like, dude, do something else. Like, uh-huh. none of your plans are coming to fruition. Like, this, just stop. But enough about our former uh, president. Wow. <laughs> so many similarities. <laughs> except that grendel is at least charming to some degree okay yeah you got got it there but yeah exactly that though there is the whole thing i do notice that dicks decided to change that final line you haven't seen the last of and it's like well no we have we have because they're never coming back here you realize that don't you (laughs) it's never going to happen and that's just as well well, the the doctor may not see more of him, but the the king and the archimandrite may. So yes, that's true. That's <sighs> when true. he tries to become the king again, dastardly fool. But <laughs> four years from now, yeah, exactly. Ugh. Well, two years actually. Good God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to stop doing that now. <laughs> I will say that the descriptions of the forest when Romana was going to find the key segment. That that mm-hmm. was nice. I, I got a good bit of atmosphere there, but it quickly turned into just yeah, very dialed in Terrence Dix, which yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, there's not much more to say about that. But he can do swashbuckling. 
Yeah. We've seen him do it. We've seen him do this sort of script before. As a matter of fact, one of the reviewers talked about, well, they, they mentioned it for a different reason, but one of the Paladin stories, the one that he did actually novelize, and there are elements that are similar. I remember there being a sword fight in one of those. Yeah. And for that matter, he did Sarah Jane's first story, The Time Warrior. He novelized that too, but I think the big difference is that was a Robert Holmes script. And the other was a Brian Hale script. And I think you're right, Eric. Terrence Dix does not get David Fisher. Yeah. It seems like something was missing. And I don't know at what point of production that was. I assume maybe maybe what happened is that on the page that doesn't come across, like some of the characteristics given by the actors and some of the fun they had with it and kind of added to to the script doesn't exist here at all which leads me to believe it may not have maybe it wasn't in david fisher's script at all maybe that was director and cast (laughs) (laughs) additions to this story but oh i'm almost certain that the cast decided to send this up as much as they could (laughs) because they knew what they were doing yeah and that's one of the only things that makes it a lot of fun to watch i mean the story is nothing super special it just um it is one of the few times that an actress playing a companion gets to play four roles <laughs> yeah because she plays romana she plays strella she plays the android romana she plays the android strella ah uh, yes and it's like oh okay that works no wonder she got messed up on her lines <laughs> at one point that's one of the few bloopers we have from doctor who is her messing up that speech that she gives as the android strella mm-hmm. oh god <laughs> descendant of the royal kings of tara Mistress of the domains of Thorvald, Morgard, and Freya, do loyally offer my loyalty to the king. Oh, fuck, I've learned it. Humbly, humbly. (laughs) Slipping into her own accent. See, we're talking more about the televised story than the book. Literally, I wrote down that was going to be one of my challenges (laughs) here is to actually talk about this book rather than (laughs) the TV. Well, I guess what we could do is tackle what we don't like about it and see if any positives come out of it, because there's bound to be something. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so what didn't we like about it? Well, the first one I wrote down right away on page 24 He has Romana make a mental apology to the doctor for her second-guessing him about uh, going out and getting involved in the the ways of the planet or something. And it's like, there is nothing that Mary Tam did in her entire season playing this character that leads me to believe that she would be making this mental apology to the doctor. Like, there is no way. Like, I don't know where that comes from or what Romana we're talking about here, but don't see that at all. (laughs) I think I know where it comes from. We've noted on this show before that Terrence Dix prefers his companions to be in the damsel in distress mode. And Romana is very much in damsel in distress mode in the story. She is, yeah. 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 Sure. She has a few good <laughs> moments, but she's definitely there to be captured, then recaptured, then put in chains, then made into an android duplicate. And I believe this may have been the story that convinced Mary Tam yeah, no, I'm not coming back for a second season. I was lied to. They said this companion was not going to be the traditional damsel in distress, and here I am getting chained to a wall. Mm-hmm. So no. Yeah. And, well, Dalton, was that your impression too? Because obviously you're only seeing Romana on the page. No, I totally felt the same way. Reading this, I'm like, Jesus, how many times is she going to get away and get brought back to this <laughs> stupid castle? One time, maybe. You know, in the beginning, when she she gets the segment, she kind of gets duped by him. 
because even when reading it, I felt like this can't be a bad character. You know, maybe a complicated character. Maybe this is kind of like a Robin Hood type, someone that's kind of fighting the aristocracy that is really bad. But when she escapes and she's with the doctor and they are distracted and the sergeant Kirster sneaks in and gets her again. I'm like, what? Why? How, how do you not hear anything? How is she not fighting back, yelling? Why is there no way that they would not know that she was being taken? And by a dwarf. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're really not sure what, how that happened because we weren't given any details of the book either. Just kind of like, oh, she was recaptured. Yeah. 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 yeah enough of that like <laughs> so it's just it's annoying it's really annoying because it's like she is a strong character when she is allowed to be but this story seems to be just like totally written to make her be submissive mm-hmm. and even the the, yeah. the secondary characters that she plays are submissive oh god yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> who actually gets fleshed out just a little bit on the page, but not by much. I mean, we're told that she's, what were the actual lines? Something along the lines of very dull, but very duty bound. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Yeah, she's not that much different from Romana, to be honest. So Mary Tam isn't stretching her acting muscles when she plays Strella, to be honest. About the only way that that character is showing any kind of strength is refusing to marry Grindel. But even that, it's just like, you're not doing anything really about it. You're just saying no. Yeah, because that's what that sort of character in this sort of story does. As a matter of fact, the number of times, and this is in the original script, the number of times the Doctor lampshades the kind of story that they are in. For example, saying, oh, yeah, whenever they ask you to come alone, it's always a trap. It's like, Doctor, <laughs> for heaven's sake, you might as well have just delivered that line to camera. It's a nod and a wink to the audience, and it's like, uh, okay, the whole story is going to be that kind of nod and wink to the audience. Because it was obviously a trap, so if you don't have the Doctor recognize it, then, then the Doctor's not the brightest guy in the room, and then you have something yeah, i don't know but anyway mm-hmm. it's just bad writing yeah. poorly mastered yeah <laughs> exactly yeah and he yeah. still manages to fall into the trap mm-hmm. yep no. he's fully aware that he's going to be trapped he doesn't think that huh, the android romana might be the android romana even though we've had the android strella so they already know how to make one yeah and then that whole business of walking out into the middle of <laughs> fire when Grendel says, I swear on my family's honor that you will not be harmed. It's like, oh, come on, doctor. Yeah, oldest <laughs> trick in the book. Yeah, like at this point, what does that mean to anybody anyway? <laughs> like we've already seen Grendel do enough yeah. to... <laughs> exactly. Well, on screen, it is played as a comic moment. It doesn't come across that way on the page, and I think that's what you were getting at, Eric, that a lot of moments that are played for comedy just don't translate that way here at all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of things that are supposed to be funny, that it has like a dark bit whenever the doctor is fighting with Zadok and Farah, and Farah steps on the doctor's scarf, (laughs) and he cuts the scarf. And the doctor says, if you go on doing that, you're going to have to kill me. Mm-hmm. And then the next line says, there was a sword in Farah's hand and the doctor was unarmed. But suddenly Farah was frightened. Yeah, no, that's not the way Tom Baker yeah. delivers that line at all. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like, really? <laughs> the, the doctor is that attached to the scarf? 
Yeah, no. Yeah, they made it sound like he was in a murderous rage because his scarf was cut. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, it's not its not the first time it's been damaged. Yeah. <laughs> and, and usually by the doctor doing something stupid to it. Right. Yeah. In this case, it's more Tom Baker delivering that line as if saying, Dude, why would you do such a thing? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you're gonna carry on like that, then you're gonna have to kill. Yeah, something. yeah. Like... <laughs> exactly. None of that really seems to come off the page in the way it's supposed to. And other bits that are obviously put there to be funny, such as Canine shaking his head sadly. <laughs> Canine is the most immobile prop they've ever had, apart from another one that's coming up soon. <laughs> He has the mobility of a bush. That's all there is to it. Come to think of it, he is more mobile than the uh, companion I'm thinking about who's coming, but... Yeah. Because he at least moves. (laughs) (laughs) But he can't shake his head, and he can't do half the shit that he usually does on the page. Yeah, well, on page 46, uh, Dix has told us that canine growls. I'm not sure I ever remember canine growling at all, but much less in the story. Even, like, not electronically or for a laugh, I just thought it was a weird, weird thing to give to him. Well, he does do it once. Does he? But it it was a while back. Whichever story has the first time the Doctor is playing chess against canine, and Mm -hmm. I think it's when Leela is on the ship, and the Doctor throws the TARDIS into a tailspin specifically to to throw the the chest. Yes. (laughs) The story actually ends with Canine growling at him, Mm. which is just lovely. But yeah, it's not... I'd forgotten that. Yeah. (laughs) They make him very doggy in this, and... Yeah, it... It's funny in the TV story, Androids of Tara, that I almost felt like the gags with the boat when they had to cross the moat in the late part of the story, where K-9 kind of gets stuck on the <laughs> yes. on the boat and is floating around, which is all hilarious in the story, or on TV, it doesn't translate well here, but I almost kind of thought that was a, an in-joke on like, yeah, we can't use this prop, it doesn't do anything, so we're going to leave it floating in the boat for a moment of humor, like... Yeah, and obviously you don't get any of that in, in the novelization. It's just, like, <laughs> Doctor leaves him behind, and it's, yeah. Oh, but the way that ends on screen is hilarious, because you have the Doctor just laughing at K-9 being <laughs> in the boat, and that's literally how the story ends. It doesn't yeah. end with that stupid <laughs> Scooby-Doo line that Dix gives to Romana of, of, oh, Doctor, I guess you caught a fish after all, <laughs> like oh that's unworthy of you that is unworthy of her even for somebody that watches romantic video novels i love that bit i have to say that gallifreyans watch romantic video novels as if they're all sitting around watching telenovelas (laughs) oh my god i guess you have to do something when you're 900 years old and you're bored off your ass that's right right i almost expected the fact that canine was left on the raft to come back grendel was going to jump into the raft and then canine would like stun him or something or or jump into the raft and crash through it i don't i don't know i expected something to happen with the raft other than it just being ha 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 canines drifted away yes or just straight up kill him because at one point
point we're told that one of his guards dying screams <laughs> drifts down the hallway after canine has hit him it's like <laughs> what since when does that happen uh, oh my god we're also given on on page 59 a nice little tidbit about canine could move surprisingly quickly when he had to before long towers of castle Gret came into sight so yeah we're, we're reminded that oh yeah he can move fast don't worry like just <laughs> um, just never on screen yeah <laughs> when he needs to so he just never feel like moving very fast you know yes yeah, yeah when you're looking away that's when he'll <laughs> be moving fast and then suddenly he'll be right there right when the camera's not on it <laughs> yes precisely oh my god it's just awful i'll have to wait for the uh you know australian uh television series k9 to have him actually moving quickly and zooming around uh oh, london know, and, right? and such so yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> best not to mention that no no certainly not <laughs> There is mention twice. I can't remember who the the other time it is, but one time Farah mentions that he feels uneasy about androids and that they can't be trusted, which is something that we've experienced in a couple of other stories before. This idea of that machines that think for themselves are not to be trusted because they may go AWOL and turn on their masters except that's never gonna happen on tara because <laughs> no. these androids are stupid basically yeah essentially that they're they're little better Barely than functioning too so. yes yes they're like alexas <laughs> that have gotten very broken in the uh, shipping process oh my god not nearly as useful <laughs> and that does lead me to like one note that i had and i didn't remember them diving into this a whole lot in the tv story and they, they probably did um it just was there was more interesting stuff going on on the tv story and that i didn't really focus on it but uh there, there's this little bit of explanation dicks gives us a little bit of a picture of like the tar and class system and mm -hmm. it's interesting that they have an odd kind of backwards class system where the aristocracy are technology shunners mm -hmm. they consider like you know people that work on and build tech like the people that can fix and create androids to be a task for like a lowly like working class or peasant type person <laughs> uh, in fact they call them <laughs> peasants and you know not being very coded about how they feel yeah it's just getting into that a little bit I, d I don't remember that it being kind of focused on in the tv story i'm sure it's mentioned the little bit of explanation we got from dicks got me thinking about it and went okay well that there's a little bit of thought went into the way that this kind of society works i also think it's funny how stuffy the aristocracy is and i'm not sure how they exactly they stay in power on this planet yeah they seem to have no idea how to fix anything on their own even the bad guy who's breaking all the rules is still like totally slave to their rigid system of how everything must go because like the coronary nation and the, the the succession and the selecting a new king he's manipulating it a little bit but i think even he won't like really step over all of these traditions and such yeah exactly and come to think of it eric i had exactly the same reaction as you because i was like oh dicks added this i don't remember this being in the script but let me go check and sure enough i watched that scene from the televised version it's there but i think the reason why you and i both don't remember it is because that's also the moment where the android King George starts walking into a wall and almost damages itself and it's a comic moment so we're distracted by the comic moment from this bit of world building that Fisher actually did in the script. <laughs> yeah, I assumed that it was because something a little more interesting was going on. In the, you know. Oh, much more interesting, yes. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. didn't have that option in, in the novel, so. 
<laughs> David Fisher likes to do this sort of thing, though, doesn't he? Because he's going to do this in his other two stories coming up. One of them in particular, where he has, without giving anything away, a planet where, because of a lack of a certain thing certain things happen and that's exactly what's happened with tara and it's like okay well that's interesting up to a point but then you have to write a story in it <laughs> And how do you make that work? And the story itself actually works quite well as just a sci-fi gloss of Prisoner of Zenda, but on the page, though. Right. Yeah, once you start to think of how those system works, it's not quite so. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of peasants, I have to say, the character that I found the most interesting, who gets barely used at all, is Lamia. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I really like that character in the televised version. She seems to get slightly more on the page. And yet in both versions, as soon as she's killed, it's like, that was the Madame Lamia. Okay, let's get on with the story. <laughs> and you forget all about her. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is just a shame, really. Yeah. My issue with her is that her whole motivation is that she wants the Count to marry her. Mm -hmm. It's this tired love story, <laughs> unrequited love. Come on. Can, can she not just be like this badass on her own <laughs> without it being like guided by her adoration and want for the Count to accept her and love her? Mm -hmm. And it's just not super believable being Grendel is who he is. I mean, even if he was the most handsome creature on the entire planet or something, he's just not worthy of any of her adoration or, like, no. Uh, no. in any way. So, I don't know. Not at all. It's kind, kind of a weak characterization, I think. I... Yeah. And that... Uh... Uh, I just really wish there'd been more to it, but that would mean that the original script would have to have more to it and that Dix himself would want to put more in it and he's obviously just not interested in doing so. By the time we get to the line, Romano was tired of Grendel and his elaborate schemes, I was thinking, yeah, I feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Grendel's plans are convoluted to the nth degree, just like it, nothing has to be as complicated as he makes it. So No. I mean, the story would probably also be an episode shorter, too, but... You also have to wonder how he pulls some of it off, because he manages to drug them so that he can kidnap the real king. It's like, wait a minute, all right, if he's that much of a stickler for legality, then couldn't he just arrange an accident for the king while he has him kidnapped rather than drugging them all? And how does he get the wine in there? for them to drink so that they are drugged and uh, yeah for someone who's supposedly willing to murder people like that's his long-term plan he's gonna keep the people for this long and then he's going to kill everyone he's gonna marry strella and then after he's married and inherits everything then he's gonna kill her it leads me to question whether he's truly capable of it because he's not actually <laughs> doing it at any point like he does these overly convoluted things and my, the only conclusion you can draw is that it's to actually avoid having to kill anybody i guess but then again you don't <laughs> see that empathy in his character at all so it's no kind of confusing but <laughs> yeah yeah more than a little i will say the book does explain why the doctor accepts the offer of money because on screen it just seems like he suddenly decides sure i'll i'll take money why not but here it's like oh yeah they're gonna force me to do it anyway and it's just gonna get convoluted i just might as well take their useless money and do the job <laughs> yeah but that's about it, really. Yeah, that's about the extent of the depth we're given from the novelization or the additional material. Like, sometimes you get some 
you know, nice tidbits out of the novelizations that are, you know, let you read into the story, or the best of them give you a little extra. And I think that's about all this one gives. Yeah, we had one of our Goodreads discussion group say that at least the monster comes off better on the page. <laughs> and he's not wrong. As a matter of fact, since Dalton has not seen it, I just want you to see what this thing looks like because holy crap, it is. Yeah, it's interesting take. <laughs> it is astonishing. I get in trouble with our listeners often when I do things like go for the low hanging fruit of bad special effects and so on. But there's a reason why this monster sticks out, because it is bad. In fact, I've just <laughs> sent it to you. I feel like there's a difference between a, a, a bad, quote-unquote, bad special effect you know, from a modern standpoint and something that doesn't work. Those are two different things, because there could be special effects that aren't polished CG, whatever we see on TV these days, but it totally works within the confines of the story in the context and whatever. And then there's sometimes where there's just a low amount of effort or kind of like shoddy production value or stuff. And that I think those are two different things a lot of times. And you'll see that, you know, throughout cinema and television history. Special effects were what they were at the time, but it's usually the, the best of them don't well. <laughs> the biggest problem here is that the costume designer did not have any money. I mean, literally, almost no money to do this costume so what she did was she rented a bear costume <laughs> and then she made that head for it oh my god i'm yeah. I, ju I just opened the picture tony <laughs> i love yeah. it because memory doesn't even do justice when i open the picture up it's like oh yes there it is <laughs> there it is the it, the eyes do not move the mouth does not open it's got a lumpy nose and one ear the poor thing they could have just done something like do an over the shoulder from behind shot you don't have to have this stupid yes. face that is clearly not effective <laughs> i could just hear the bbc bigwigs be like but doctor who everyone loves the monsters you gotta have the monsters so yeah yeah, yeah. no yeah but it's just it doesn't work it doesn't it's not it's not scary. If if you don't see the face, if you don't see the thing that the person re is reacting to, that can be scary. Yes. But when you see the dumpy, no eyes, big buck teeth, like yeah. that brings it into the realm of funny. Yeah. <laughs> I and keep in mind this scene is totally daylight like this is a like a courtyard around a statue right and like <laughs> right. totally full daylight you know they could have maybe hid this thing in shadows or had it taken place in a cave or something you know you could have yeah. done something to make this work but this is just again you play around with perspective you you make it look bigger than it is yes you know you make romana somehow on the ground make her in a position i mean you're already making her submissive for the whole rest of the story why not go the further <laughs> step and make her literally be like shrieking in terror on the ground i don't know. well to his credit dix does not have her scream in that moment i do actually love the line when she's reacting to it she tried to call upon her time lady training and detachment when confronted with the reality of a slavery monster it wasn't so easy well <laughs> i think it's not so much the reality of a slavery monster because i don't think that thing could slaver i think it's more when confronted with the reality of a truly bad costume it's hard just not to burst out laughing instead <laughs> yeah. oh yeah <laughs> yeah is the scene where Stella teaches Romana how to embroider in the televised version? Yep. Oh my god. Yeah. It is one of your classic split screens done on video where you can see the join and all of that. Ugh. 
Yeah, Dix at least says that Strella looks slightly different than Ramana, but no, it's Mary Tam. <laughs> yep. She plays, yeah, all of them. Which is yes. not the first time we've seen in the history of Doctor Who that there is a person, a clone-type situation where it's just for, like, no apparent reason, like, oh, this person looks exactly like Romana. <laughs> like, we see that, you know, uh, prior stories, is it, um... And the massacre where the doctor looks exactly like the French nobleman. Yes. And, uh, yeah, just, yeah. I, and I don't even think that's the only other example. Like, there's yet another that I'm not thinking of, but. Oh, you're um, thinking about Troughton and Salamander. Oh, Salamander. Yeah, that's coincidental yeah, Enemy as well. of the World. Yeah. Now, yeah. in both of those cases, at least, the actors are playing the second part completely differently. Yes. Uh, with yeah. varying levels of success in Troughton's part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That accent you just can't get around. <laughs> but Strella is basically Romana, and that's all there is to it, which is nothing against Mary Tam. I think it's Mary Tam saying, uh, fine. If I have to do this, sure. <laughs> yeah. A favorite moment from the television story, of course, is the sword fight between the Doctor and Grendel. I always found it funny because we hear throughout this whole thing what a wonderful or terrific swordsman Grendel is. Yeah. And how he's, you know, just the, he's the most feared swordsman in, in all of Terran society. I think it's funny because in the, sto- in the TV story, it seems to me, and I, I assume this is intentional, that all things about Tara that they seem to be very proud of. They're proud of their technology. These androids, we can accomplish so much, and they're kind of crappy androids, right? (laughs) Yeah. And so I felt like that's the same thing about all their swordsmen. (laughs) Like Grendel and even the swordmaster and stuff, they don't seem to be really all that great with their weapons, or but it's kind of like Taran society is built around this um premise of building yourself up as the greatest when maybe you're you know not really and so when the doctor kind of steps up to fight with grendel the doctor's obviously not a very good swordsman or great swordsman and he just runs circles around him essentially yes yes (laughs) so it totally works in the way that yeah i don't know if the actor wasn't a a great swordsman or they didn't have enough time to block out a good sword fight or what their intentions were but it works really well that it isn't great because it kind of like sells this whole concept of just Terran society being more about, you know, puffing yourself up to be these these great things when the reality is perhaps a little different. So I just found it to be a very comic scene, and the way Tom Baker does it is great. That's true. My long point there is none of this comes across in the book. It's played straight-faced. It just seems like the Doctor's having a sword fight all of a sudden, which seems a bit out of character when it's not seen the way it kind of plays out in the TV show. Yeah, especially when he's described as looking down at the sword as if surprised to find it there, Mm -hmm. and then suddenly busting out these swordsman moves, which he obviously knows from the third Doctor's time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, on screen, Tom Baker is doing very much a comedy sword fight and so it is really a surprise when he pests Grendel come to think of it that part at least gets something more on the page especially Dick's adding that detail about the doctor not even powering up the sword to full strength mm-hmm. and Grendel getting pissed off about that because he takes it as an insult against his manly pride and it's like okay that's good mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah but there's not nearly enough of that sort of thing which is fine I guess but oh gosh Anything else we want to say about this one? There's the line about Zadok and Farah looking discreetly away as the royal couple kissed. Oh, I don't, I don't quite know how to take that. But <laughs> oh. it just, it seemed off to me. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. Well, yeah. If I recall, they're not even in the room on screen when that happens. So 
God only knows what Dix was thinking. He was probably thinking, give me my paycheck already. I'm <laughs> almost done with this one. Yeah. Oh, more than very few of the other books that we've read, this one really does have that feel of script to page in a way that I just haven't really encountered with a lot of his other works. Now, Hinchcliffe, definitely, script to page. Yeah. And in fact, he takes some of the stuff off the page <laughs> and decides not to put it in the book to its detriment. That was definitely going to be one of my, uh, in, in my closing statement, was the Hinchcliffe books that we read were so script to page, like literally just, these are basically the screen directions. And I will give Terrence Dix credit that even in this case, at his most rudimentary, he is much more readable than Philip Hinchcliffe's stuff. So. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> oh, so true. And this reads a lot like one of those, and it's disappointing. But that's fine, because it's also Androids of Tara, so why should we be disappointed in that? <laughs> yeah. It is what it is, as the young folks say. <laughs> so, shall we go to Goodreads? Yeah. <laughs> yeah Why I think not? So. I don't think I have much else to say. <laughs> Nor <Yep>. do I. <laughs> as we always do, and we're so glad to do it this time, let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here, and I will make sure, by the way, that those forums are up ahead of time, unlike the 48 hours notice I gave everybody this time. I very much apologize for that. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.46, which surprises me a bit. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon gives it 4 stars and says, Really enjoyed this book. I wonder why they didn't return as the book was left inviting it like the Curse and Monster of Paladon stories did. I don't think anyone's all that interested in going back to Tara, though. Yeah, it, it's not like those Megara coming after the Doctor. No one's screaming to know what's going to happen. Also in our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it three stars and said this one is, again, pretty much script page. The production values on screen were, for the most part, very good, with a lot of location work and some costume drama that the BBC at the time were famous for. We lose the sumptuousness of all that, that is true, but there are a few gains. The creature that attacks Romana just after she finds the second, for example, is not giant rat bad, but only because it is dispatched quickly, never to be seen again. <laughs> On the page, it serves its purpose without the embarrassment of having to look at a man in a rubbish fur suit. Another big improvement is with the androids. As with the Sarah Jane android and the android invasion, as soon as the face is removed, what remains is unconvincing and breaks the spell. The effect was good for the time, but I'm now used to seeing better with the use of CGI, so such deficiencies stand out. In prose, you can't see the joins. And finally, Rocky Sunako gives it four stars and writes, There truly is a unique charm to adventures involving the Fourth Doctor, and this is a great example of his playfulness and impish charms. This is another story connected to the larger arc where they're searching for the different parts of the key to time, and it starts with the Doctor refusing to do the work. Romana sets out to efficiently find the next piece without involving herself with the locals as the Doctor would, but of course she gets pulled into things, and the Doctor's fishing data? 
the doctor's fishing data. The doctor's fishing data, it, that, that's literally what it says. The doctor's fishing data is also brought to an abrupt end. I guess he, he meant date. The situation on Tara is a complex one that has them in a largely medieval-style society, but empowered by very human-looking androids providing supplementary labor, among other things. This is turning into plot summary. This isn't the most complex Doctor Who adventure. <laughs> no shit. Nor does it involve overly complex, wibbly-wobbly science as a solution. No, it doesn't. Instead, it's a lot of maneuvering, switching around characters and their android duplicates, and other hijinks as the Doctor tries to do the best for the people of this planet planet and of course to find Romana and the segment of the key to time which they find at the very beginning so there we are and thus we have quite the series of misadventures as we get to a proper ending even K9 saw a lot of action in this story as well which I'm totally here for well I'm glad somebody was pleased by this <laughs> all right let's find out what you thought Dalton out of five stars what did you give this one I'm gonna go pretty low and give this one a two <laughs> okay before we were recording I was telling you that I just did not care about really anything that was going on in this book. Overall, <laughs> it just felt like there wasn't really any care or love put into the, any of the characters or the setting or the story itself, which the story isn't really Terrence Dick's fault. But I felt like this is very much a filler story. So, yay, we have four pieces of the heat of time. But, yeah, the story I could kind of just do without. So, two for me. Okay. And Eric? Yeah, I'm going to be right around the same. Although I, I am going to, you know, reiterate that I did find this to be generally readable. It just wasn't very exciting and didn't give you a whole lot of insight into the story. Dick's totally kind of missing the humor or you know like we like we discussed a lot maybe that came later in the process and not from fisher's script but i think this one is totally middle of the road but because i didn't find it to be prose wise a challenge to read in any way i think i'm going to go with a 2.5 so right down the middle Okay, and I'm going to go straight down the middle of both of y'all and give this a 2.25 for much the same reasons, because as I've said many times on this podcast, a novelization is successful when it recaptures the story and it represents it faithfully but also recaptures some of the spirit of it it's an excellent novelization when it goes above and beyond and makes it into something new and different and exciting and original none of that is happening here it barely recaptures the spirit of the original because it's not getting the charm and warmth and humor that makes an otherwise rather middling story something that's actually enjoyable to watch. The four episodes themselves? Perfectly fine to watch. Do they have any impact on anything? No. They're basically just a delivery vehicle for the fourth segment, which gets maybe five minutes of screen time, if that, and that's it. So even the bits that are added here aren't all that great. So mm, middling to low, Terrence Sticks. Well, thank you both. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. It's always fun. <laughs> yes. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we're doing a special episode for Chicago TARDIS, the convention that we hold every year here in Chicago. 
And this time we're even doing it in person for once, so yahoo! So what we're going to do is welcome back Trey Corte to discuss Junior Doctor Who and the Giant Robot and Junior Doctor Who and the Brain of Morbius, because why not? <laughs> it is almost certain that many of you will not have copies of this. I will make sure that there are links to the PDF versions up on our description for these episodes so that you're able to download these gems and read them and be ready to discuss them with us in a couple weeks' time. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all the word with their spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.